0: Favorite thing about working in healthcare is the people. This industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated individuals who are driven by the opportunity to make a difference. My name is Hallie Tecco, and this is The Heart of Healthcare a podcast where I'll be introducing you to the people on the ground moving the needle in public health and medicine. Even if you haven't caught COVID yet, it certainly has upended your life in some way. Postponed weddings, lonely birthdays, closed schools, losing loved ones. In 2021, with the introduction of not one, but three vaccines, we could see what we thought was the light at the end of the tunnel. But now, as Omicron case counts reach exponential new highs and hospitals run out of beds and have staffing issues, it feels like this will never end. It feels like this pandemic may just be our new normal. Today, I have the honor of talking to and asking this question to Dr. Bob Wachter, who is the chair of the UCSF Department of Medicine. For many of us, Dr. Wachter has been a source of frontline information on the pandemic since the beginning with his regular Twitter updates that are full of data and insights on the state of COVID-19. Dr. Wachter has been named as the most influential physician executive in the U.S. And his book, The Digital Doctor, was a New York Times science bestseller. Dr. Wachter received his medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania, completed his residency at UCSF, was a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation clinical scholar at Stanford, and studied patient safety as a Fulbright scholar. All right, Dr. Wachter, thank you for being here.
1: It is a great pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: It has been a doozy of a few weeks since the holidays for all of us. Did you ever think we would still be dealing with this pandemic two years later?
1: I had a chance to guest host the uh, Andy Slavitt's podcast, In the Bubble, uh, till it was January through May last year. And when Andy came back, I asked him, what's the podcast going to become uh, since COVID is ending? So that's (laughs) what I thought uh, in May 2021. So no, Mm -hmm. I did not think we would still find ourselves here.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think many of us have. Um, so even though people are calling Omicron the mild COVID, hospitals are filling up. Talk to us about he how even this mild strain of COVID can and has completely upended our healthcare system.
1: Well, first of all, it's it's milder. I don't love calling it mild because it's milder than a virus that has killed. 840,000 Americans. So uh, it it would have to be a lot milder for it to be inconsequential. It's still a pretty big deal. And there's a math equation that isn't all that hard to understand, which is it can be half as severe, but if it's five or 10 times uh, more infectious and more prevalent, that still lands you in a bad place. And that's what was predicted since we figured out that it was milder, but was much more infectious and, and partly evaded your immune system. And uh, those predictions have come true. Actually, they've come true more than I expected in terms of the prevalence. In San Francisco, where I live, six weeks ago, we were having 50 five zero cases a day. And now we have 1,500. And those are the ones that are being reported. All the ones that are being diagnosed through rapid tests are not being reported. So Massively more uh, more infectious, massively more prevalent. And even though it's probably 50 to 70% less likely to land you in the hospital, that's still a ton of hospitalized patients. And now on top of it, something we haven't had before, which is a huge number of healthcare workers that are out because they're sick. So a yeah. combination of more patients in hospitals, some of them quite ill, all of them, not all, uh, and a lot of healthcare workers who can't work is, is a bad scene. We're muddling through in San Francisco in part because our vaccine rate is so high that we're not getting hammered the way they are in other parts of the country. But when I talk to colleagues in, in New York or Boston or Miami or Houston, Uh, It is really pretty dire.
0: Yeah. So what happens when hospitals are forced to start rationing care because there are no more beds or ventilators? How will they decide how to do that? And then is there a case where they would ever give preference to those who are vaccinated?
1: No. I I can't imagine that happening, that Mm. that um, the rationing, I think, is is less because of the beds now and really more because of the people. And, and, Mm. and, uh, you know, do we have enough people to staff the ICU or the or the ER? It's a chronic struggle in American medicine. I think a really interesting question in American medicine. Do you give preference to people who have been acting, quote, well and with a scarce resource? Do you limit it? Uh, for people that contributed to the need for it. And so we have long confronted that in terms of uh, treatments for people with lung cancer. Do you do do it differently for people who smoked or didn't for uh, treating uh, cirrhosis of the liver uh, with alcohol, treating diabetes for people who are obese? and uh and and in general the consensus has been our job is to deliver the best care we can to the people that need it the most and if your need for it came partly from something you did or didn't do that shouldn't go into it even when there is a truly truly scarce resource where we have to make those decisions and and the example i'm thinking about is is liver transplantation for people for whom their risk factor was alcohol use they often get triaged out. They often will not be eligible for uh, for a liver transplant, but the rationale is not that they did it. The rationale is their ability to uh, keep themselves safe and stay on the medications and all those things that really are predictors of how they're going to do is 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 the reason why uh in, at least in some transplant programs, alcoholics won 't go uh to the uh, to the front of the line. So yeah, I could see people getting charged more in their health insurance premiums because they're, you know, the, it's the same as smoking or the same as not wearing a seatbelt that they put themselves at higher risk, and that's going to mm-hmm. lead to greater costs. Uh, but I can't see that there will be rationing at the point of care that this person is allowed to die because of a decision that they made. That's uh, there's no tradition of that in American healthcare.
0: Yeah. But hospitals are already having to ration the antiviral drugs from Pfizer and Merck that are available, but available in limited quantities. How is that currently being done?
1: Yeah, I think it highlights the the issue you just brought up, Hallie. I think it's a tough call, but at least so far, the decision-making, let's take the Pfizer drug, which is really the the real game-changer of all of the drugs, and it's not so much in the hospital world. These are pills that we can give people as their outpatients who are at high risk of a bad outcome. And uh, when you, if you only have so many, and that is the situation now, there, there, there's a limited supply, it will grow over the course of the year, but for now it's quite a limited supply. The decisions that every hospital I know of has made is to prioritize uh, people by virtue of their risk of a bad outcome and the benefit of those pills if they take them. So what the pills have shown to do is decrease the probability that someone with COVID will, uh, will get super sick and end up in the hospital and end up in the ICU and die by about 90%. So that's pretty spectacular. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but who is first in line to get them? I think first in line at our place is immunocompromised patients. Mm-hmm. who uh, who are at high risk and for whom the vaccines often didn't take. But the fact that uh, if you have a an elderly person who's at high risk by virtue of their age or their comorbidities and they're unvaccinated, that puts them at a substantially higher risk of a bad outcome and hospitalization and death than it would be for me who's gotten three shots. So that person will get prioritized over me. Uh, Will that piss me off? Yes. As a human being, Mm. is that the wrong call epidemiologically? No, it's not that their chances of getting sick are far higher than mine are. And so it's actually a reasonable call if the idea is to save as many lives as possible. Although you can see why, uh, why it would be controversial.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing stories from physicians who have to make, um, have to face patients who are who chose to be unvaccinated and then are asking for treatments that are not proven and are in you know position of I've been telling you to get vaccinated and now you're sick and you you know are asking for something experimental but claim that the vaccine was experimental I can't imagine how hard it is to work in and how demoralizing it is to work in the hospital setting right now when you're doing everything you can to save lives But patients who have tools to save their own lives aren't necessarily doing what they can do.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're we're sort of trained to to uh, put that part of our brain aside a little bit and not be not 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 do our best to to take care of people as well as we can. Mm -hmm. Then we're, you know, but we're human beings and it would not be human, I think, to not be pissed at a patient who is coming in and particularly one who now wants, uh, an experimental and unproven therapy, which is just sort of just insane. I mean, that there are parts of this that are just sort of so ridiculous and, 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 um, and foolish that, that you almost have to laugh if it wasn't so serious. But, you know, the fact that, that they have made a decision, uh, not to take a breathtakingly effective and, and extraordinarily safe uh, vaccine, which could have prevented them from coming in the hospital. And now here you are up to your neck in 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 COVID patients and other patients who don't, you know, can't get into the ER. They're sitting in the waiting room because the, the hospital is packed and you're coming in every day and you're putting your own self at risk to get sick through an infection that you may get from someone who's made a decision to put themselves at risk. So yeah. what's a little different about COVID than a lot of the other things that are, that we deal with all the time in healthcare is your decision to drive fast, not wear a seatbelt, smoke uh, drink is, you know, that's a really bad decision on your part, but the, the, the cost will be to you and uh, it's sort of all within that person and their decision-making here. Your decisions influence others, put others at risk, put the entire community at risk, arguably are the reason that we find ourselves still in this pickle. So I think it wouldn't be human to not be a little bit angry about Mm -hmm. it and frustrated about it and disappointed in it. Uh, But yet, I think it is part of our training to try to the degree possible to put that aside and do the best we can to take care of them.
0: Is there a class on that that you took in med school?
1: Uh boy, med school is so many thousands of years ago. I don't remember Yeah, I mean there is a it, it's interesting. I, I probably can tell you more from watching my daughter as a fourth year med student at UCSF mm-hmm. And and part of the socialization. Of physicians really is taking you from the world of a lay person to the world of a physician. A lot of that is a knowledge base. You're learning to be an expert in a domain as the same as if you're learning if you're in business school or law school or any other, any other professional school. Uh, but part of it really is a mindset and a, and, and kind of a professional temperament. And, um, and whether it's a single class or whether it's sort of just the gestalt of what you see around you when you start taking care, taking care of patients, it's very much part of the, of the culture of medicine, and you know it's 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 part of kind of a broader thing. I, I've I've been thinking a lot about this recently because my son just got COVID and I've been kind of dealing with that. It's part of a broader thing that happens to lay people as they become this thing we call physicians, which is learning to sort of take the emotional part of dealing with some really. Often tragic situations, and also park it in a, a deeper part of your brain. uh Which, if you take that uh, admonition too far, you of course become unfeeling and robotic and not a very good doctor. But if you don't take it far enough, you can't practice medicine. I mean, mm-hmm. if every person I took care of who died, you know, threw me for uh, for a loop for a week, I couldn't do my job. And so, part of it is sort of learning how to manage your emotions and all those things, so you can suit back up and go and. Take care of people and do the best you can, and it is definitely part of the the, the journey uh, on the way to being a physician.
0: Yeah, are you worried about the mental health of your colleagues after the last two years?
1: Yes, um, uh, I think there's a huge amount of burnout. I think that people are a, a lot of it is is what they've seen in the hospital and 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 and, and particularly in cities that have been harder hit than than, than San Francisco. Uh, it's been traumatic. It's sort of a battlefield thing. Part of it is the politicization of, of COVID and the fact that there's just more tension in the air. I mean, you know, I friends of mine who became litigators, they went into a field where they knew they were going to have arguments with people all the time. That's sort of that's the business. And for them, they liked it in medicine. You didn't you didn't go into it for that reason. You generally feel like I'm going to be on the same page with my patients and we're going we're trying for the same goal we're trying to make them better or keep them healthy and the fact that for many people and again less in the bay area than I and, and colleagues in other parts of the country there's so many relationships that now have become tense and confrontational which is of course it's a metaphor for our entire society i think that's difficult and then for a lot of people it's not just, you know, professional life taking care of COVID, but then you come home and you deal with all the traumas that everybody's dealing with, you know, dealing with the kids and dealing with your aging parents and dealing. And, but there's a little bit of a special piece of this that you've been spending all day taking care of COVID. You come home and you worry very much. Did, did I catch it at work? And am I, am I going to give it to someone I love? So that's a lot of trauma to people, but I don't know that it's that much worse than than what a lot of other people are going through. It's obviously an incredibly hard time.
0: So switching gears, what do you think our lives will be like this summer? Please tell me some good news.
1: The summer is about as far out as I'm comfortable predicting. I'm glad you didn't ask for the fall and <laughs> winter. And I'm, I'm 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 quite comfortable with the spring. And then it, my level of comfort falls off the further life goes. Okay,
0: out. well, tell me spring then summer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you have to recognize, you know, every, all of us who've been in the prediction business for the last couple of years, and unfortunately, when I make predictions, it's often, you know, on YouTube for people to watch and see that, that you know, I got it wrong. There have just been so many predictions that have turned out to be wrong, not because they, were, uh, they, they weren't they were thoughtful and sense sensible at the time. It's just curveball after curveball after curveball. And it has made us. Uh, circumspect about predictions, uh, probably to the point of being overly circumspect, because because you know at some point there won't be a, a new curveball and those predictions will come true. Here's what I think is likely to happen for the next uh, few months. That it's amazing how fast the science has moved. A, a month ago, we really didn't understand Omicron and how infectious it was, and immune evasion and severity and all those things. We now understand those things really quite well. So the other thing we understand is this pattern, which when we first saw it in South Africa, where cases went up like a, a skyrocketed and then came down just as quickly, really within the space of a, six weeks or eight weeks. You kind of wonder, is that just an N of one? And South Africa has some distinct aspects to it. Will that play out elsewhere? So now we understand not only the biology and physics and math of of Omicron, but we have seen that pattern from South Africa play out now in England and in Ireland. And we've seen cases that were skyrocketing in New York, Boston, Washington, D.C., and now even in in the Bay Area uh, beginning to either plateau or start to come down. So I think we can be pretty confident that that's the South Africa pattern will be what we see. This is fast up, pretty brutal and hospitals full bad stuff happening a lot of people getting sick a lot of people dying ton of people getting covid and then fast down and it come it takes as long to come down as it took to come up so you know we're probably at about the peak in the united states now maybe a week away and so i think you could say by mid february likelier than not we will be at a fairly low level of cases and why that happens why it comes down so fast nobody fully understands Clearly, part of it is that, you know, you've now given a higher level of immunity to the people who got breakthrough infections and maybe any immunity to many of the people who have been unvaccinated. So in mid-February, I think we are likely to find ourselves in a place where pretty much 100 percent of the population has some immunity from some combination of vaccines and infection. You have a virus that has not gone away but is at a relatively low prevalence and that's a, that's a huge deal. At, you know, right now, if I walk into the Starbucks in my neighborhood in San Francisco, it's about a one in 10 chance that somebody in in the Starbucks uh, has COVID and feels fine. Yeah. If the prevalence comes down to where it was six weeks ago, that's more like one in 500. So it's mm-hmm. just a math problem. You're just far less likely to be exposed to it. So low-level prevalence, low-level of virus in the community at a time where the virus itself is probably about 50, 60% milder on average. So if I do get infected and I have some immunity, which even the, the no vaccine people will now have from their infections, I'm at least somewhat to very protected against very sick, getting very sick. On top of that, the, particularly the Pfizer medicine will be increasingly available, still not available for everybody, but available enough that high risk people would be the ones that might land in the hospital, I think will have access to that. When mm-hmm. you add all that up, you end up in a pretty good place. And I think people are somewhat resistant to hearing that because they've heard it before <laughs> or they think you'll jinx it or they think everybody's going to let mm-hmm. their guard down or any of that stuff. I am being super careful now. I do not at all buy the idea that everybody's going to get Omicron might as well just have a party. I think that's stupid. I'm being super careful in part because I think I only have to be careful, really careful for the next three or four weeks. I think we end up in a good place. Then the question is, how long does that last? And uh, anybody who tells you they're sure about what the summer or the fall looks like is making it up because it's completely predicated on two things that we do not know the answer to. One is, what is the probability that a new variant comes and is nastier uh, than Omicron, either an immune evasion or infectiousness? And anybody who says that can't be, look how good Omicron is at its job, uh, just go ask them did they predict Omicron? The answer is no. So you can't believe them. The answer is. There is some, I think, small but non-zero probability that we get something even worse. That changes the ballgame. The second thing that changes the ballgame is part of the reason we're in a good place in February and March is that all of these people, particularly the non-vaccinated people, which shockingly is a third of our citizens, um, have gotten some immunity from their infection. How good that immunity is and how long that lasts is completely unknown, because we won't know it until enough time has passed, to see. And so those are the two variables that I think make it incredibly hard to predict whether we'll still be good next fall, next winter, but I'm quite confident that spring will be fine.
0: Yeah. I'm wondering if anyone is starting some sort of COVID vacation insurance based on these predictions.
1: (laughs) Well, I just bought tickets to a friend's 65th birthday party in early-ish February, and it cost me $200 to get a fully refundable ticket and i spent the 200 bucks.
0: Okay, yeah. So, that's
1: kind of where <laughs> I'm uh, I'm it'll be okay but hedging my bet a little yeah, bit. Yeah,
0: i'm getting for a spring trip to disney. It's been it's been too long for my 4-year-old, so uh, the, i need to I do something special for him. Yeah. So you mentioned people uh, not thinking it's smart For people to just try to get it to get it over with did you hear about the australian woman who wanted to get omicron before her wedding and so she went to the bars and started drinking people's drinks and hugging strangers so that she would get it
1: i didn't but (laughs) it's a big world and there are a lot of crazy people
0: yeah so what would you say to people maybe not that extreme but what would you say to people who have just given up they're just tired um they're lonely, they're bored, they're angry, and they see that their friends are getting it and it's, you know, for their friends, it's a cold. What would you say to them?
1: First of all, I understand. I mean, we're all tired and unhappy and grumpy and and, and all of these curveballs have jerked us around. So the, the, the sentiment is, is normal. Um, it's not the right thing to do. And part of it is, uh that what i just said i mean the best prediction is that you just have to muddle through for another 3 or 4 weeks and you you're going to be in a far better place um you know a lot of people have i i think this idea that it is mild is is a mistake and 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 to some extent it's right and to some extent it's wrong what they're taking is they're conflating when you see statistics on 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 uh, on covid and on omicron you often see them parsed as in severe or not severe and in and and that's what we use for clinical trials you need to drug work um, well severe means you were sick enough to go to the hospital i mean that's really sick that means you you were desperately short of breath and you needed oxygen and we thought you were at very high risk of a bad outcome including dying that's severe not severe is everything from a cold, you you had sniffles and sneeze for a couple of days, to what my son is finishing up now, which is about five days of feeling like he was run over by a bus, to uh, some people that are really laid up for weeks, to probably about 5% of people that have long COVID, meaning two to three months out, they still don't feel right. And whether or not feel right is their brain's not working right, or or they're still short of breath, or they're still truly fatigued. And those people, for those people, it's very real. So that is, and you're not risking any of those things if you get your immunity through your vaccine. So I think it just doesn't make any sense to go ahead and get it and risk the possibility it'll be a pretty severe case, risk the possibility that you'll infect somebody else while you have it, as opposed to, you know, some of those people have not gotten their boosters. I mean, just get the darn booster. I mean, that's that's what you should do if you want immunity. The best way to get it is with a vaccine as opposed to an infection. And again, I think what you know, if if you're in the all right, I got to be careful. It really is probably for another three to four weeks. And then we'll be on the other side of this thing.
0: After the break, Dr. Wachter will be answering questions from folks on Twitter. So let's move on to some questions from people on Twitter. Dan McQueen wants to know, how do we encourage the general population that the CDC has their best health interests in mind when their recent adjustments to guidance recommendations appear to be motivated by economics over science?
1: Yeah, it's tricky. The CDC, uh, you know, is a world-class organization with very good people trying to get it right. I don't have any doubt that their motivations are to preserve the public health to the degree possible, but preserving the public health also includes having the economy that works and making sure that we can staff our hospitals and making sure that people can travel if they want to. So I, I don't think it's as clean as, you know, public health versus the economy. I, you know the decision that he's referring to probably is the the 5 day isolation decision and i think that was not so much about the economy i think it was probably about the shortage of testing i think that they looked and said if we say you can be released from isolation uh but we're going to require that you have two negative tests and then you go to your local pharmacy and can't find a test then first of all you're pretty unhappy second of all you're kind of stuck like what do i do now and so, I think the policy problem there was the the absence of tests that we did not invest in making tests uh, ubiquitous as they are in most of Europe. Um, and then they came they tried to fudge it and they and they said that the tests aren't all that reliable, which I think is just not true. I think they actually serve that purpose quite well, that you know they will tell you at the end of five days, are you still infectious or not? So I just went through this with my son. On day five, he was feeling better. According to CDC guidance, he was okay to go back to work as long as he wore a good mask. If he'd gone back to work, the chances he was going to infect someone was very low as long as he was wearing an N95 or or the equivalent, but it was not zero. And I've managed to to, to find a test, which wasn't easy, and he tested positive. So, and he's still testing positive on day eight. So I think the right call is for him to stay out of human contact until his test turns negative. Uh, but, I, you know, acknowledging it's a hard decision, I don't think it was the economy versus public health. I think it was more the economy, keeping society going, recognizing the risk of him infecting people is low-ish, uh, recognizing there are a ton of people walking around who have COVID and don't know it, and they're probably a bigger threat than these people who are on day six, and recognizing there aren't enough tests around. I think they tried to pull all that together and coming up with a decision, and I sort of just think they got it wrong. And the mm-hmm. right call is to test people and to get more tests out there so you can test your way out of isolation.
0: Yeah. Okay. So Carrie Eight wants to know, how is UCSF and other top medical institutions researching and treating long-haul COVID? And what are you seeing as people's prognosis?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. There's research, there's a huge clinical trial that's been uh, started by by the NIH, uh, some of our top viral virology and immunology researchers, Steve Deeks and others, are focused very much on long COVID. We've got a long COVID clinic at UCSF where we take care of patients, but also study them to understand what's going on with them. Um, I have to say, like a lot of persistent symptoms in medicine, including chronic fatigue syndrome, we just don't understand it very well. It's clearly real. It's a hard thing to study because if you ask the general population you know do you have fatigue brain fog uh, you know a lot of people say yes so it, you have to really have a good control group to be sure that the prevalence is substantially higher in people who've had covid and it clearly is there are some people that have uh, symptoms that go on for 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 many months the my reading of the literature is it's still pretty messy i don't think we have a deep understanding yet of uh, how many people is it that the virus is continuing to to kind of rumble inside them and causing its own mischief. How many of them is it? Uh, their immune system reacting to the virus and then continuing to uh, to to course through your body and cause its own problems. It's not very well known what is going on with people with long COVID. What is the prevalence? I think the best estimate that I would take from the literature, and it's all over the place. But I, the best estimate I would have, and it's what goes into my decision making, and why I, one of the reasons I really trying hard not to get COVID, is that I probably, being a fully vaccinated person, probably have about a one in 20 chance Mm -hmm. of having symptoms that will go on more than two months. And that's enough to be yet another thing that makes me want to try to avoid getting it if I can, uh, as long as it's particularly at a time where it's so prevalent in the community. And what the treatment is, I think at this point, there are a lot of things that are being tried, including vaccination, um, and, uh, and we don't know the answer. So the best treatment is to stay vaccinated and try to be careful enough not to get it. Uh, but you know I, that's the number I use. It's probably 5% in fully vaccinated people. Vaccines look like they lower the risk somewhat. So maybe 10% risk in unvaccinated people who get COVID.
0: Mm. All right. Trey Lauderdale wants to know, when you think kids under five can get vaxxed, pleading face, pleading face, pleading face. Pleading face.
1: Yeah, um, we don't we don't know. In, uh, I mean, the clinical trials are ongoing. The original trial, uh, where they you know they make their best guess as to what the right dose is and what the right spacing of the doses, didn't yield the immunologic uh, effects that you want to see that correlate with protection. So they had to go to the, back to the drawing board and expand the clinical trial and change the dose regimen a little bit. I think the best guess is it will be it'll be another three or four months. Uh, You know, that's what I've heard. It's sort of March, April. And so, you know, the good news about the little kids is the probability of a severe case is extraordinarily low. But we are seeing more cases in them, in part because they are one of the populations that still is unvaccinated and obviously Mm -hmm. because they can't be. So and I, I don't have little kids anymore and I have tremendous sympathy. I sort of almost can't imagine what it's like trying to keep them protected during uh, during this time. And you just have to do the best you can do, which is doing your best to surround them with people that do not have COVID and have done everything they can to not have COVID.
0: Yeah. Uh, Ryan Pachadsaram wants to know, what is the likelihood that we will need booster shots every year? Does this become like the flu?
1: Yeah, I think the likelihood is high that we will need periodic booster shots. Um, and because for for many other... Infections like this, and flu is probably the best analogy. Uh, you do it's part because immunity wanes, and in part because there are variants that that, that do enough shape shifting that the vaccine from last year doesn't work quite as well as it as it needs to. I mean, the good news about that is there's no great reason why you couldn't package it together with the flu vaccine. So maybe we just get one shot a year, and one and done for both uh, for both illnesses. I think implied in the question is, when does it also become like the flu in terms of the risk? And I would say once this surge is passed and once we're down to a relatively low prevalence, then the risk of getting very sick and the risk of dying for a fully vaccinated, by that I mean three shots at this point, a boosted person, is actually quite similar to the flu. Um, now, the flu is not nothing. I mean, the flu kills 30 to 50,000 Americans a year. But not four hundred thousand Americans a year, so but once you get to the point of now a milder virus than we 've had before, the, the the substantial protection against getting very sick that, that's afforded you by three shots of vaccine, and then you layer on top it particularly uh, on top of it, particularly the Pfizer drug becoming more available to take people at very high risk and lower their probability of getting very sick and dying by ninety percent. Then you have a situation, uh, you know, people are resistant to this because like the flu became politicized like everything else. And, you know, a year ago when people said that it was a lie, it absolutely was not like the flu, you know, to to kill 400,000 people a year is very different than the flu. It was far, far worse than the flu. But at some point we have to accept that, in fact, it is. And I think we're getting close to that. And, you know, when I talk about next month being a time where I and we may go back to acting not quite 2019, I'll still wear a mask on airplanes for a while, for example, but but not that far off. It is because the, that's a pragmatic decision that the risk has fallen to the point that it is not all that different sure. than, than the risk from the flu.
0: And some communities have been doing that for decades. In Asia, particularly, you see people way before COVID wearing masks.
1: Yeah, I remember the first time I went to Japan and I was so yeah. shocked seeing half the people on the street and almost most of the people on subways wearing masks. And yeah, it would be fascinating to see how we come out of this that, that you know, in, in Asia, they became kind of mask wearing cultures and it became normalized, it wasn't a big deal. I think that will probably, like everything else, parse itself by where you are in the country. So I think if you're on a bar train in San Francisco, I think you'll probably see a lot of people wearing a mask. And yeah. if you're on a train in the middle of the country or in the South, you probably won't see many people wearing masks.
0: So last question, Dr. Carol W wants to know how can we help guidelines around COVID precautions, quarantine testing from the government or companies be agile and respond quickly to future variants?
1: Yeah, I, it's you know, it, embedded in the question is a part of the tension here, because you don't want them to be too agile, because that gives people the sense that you're jerking them around and you're, you know, you just told me last month that I can wear a cloth mask, but now you say that's no good. And uh, you know, you told me that uh, that I need to stay in isolation for ten days, you now say five, but now you say maybe I should test, but maybe I shouldn't. So doing public communication in an age of a threat like this that changes its nature so quickly and there and thereby the science changes incredibly quickly you know i'm on twitter you know every hour there's something new that i didn't you know that what i thought yesterday isn't quite right so i think you have to be careful there not to change the guidance as uh, too quickly and to be thoughtful about is this going to be guidance that will have staying power but then of course condition it you know when i said i'm ready to start traveling and living life more normally in may And I said it again in November. That is what I thought, given what I knew at the time. And a month later, I was acting differently because the Risk had change. and to say to people it can't ever change, like saying to people you don't have to ever worry about a hurricane. Well, we don't worry about hurricanes until you look up in the weather report and it says there's a hurricane heading towards your house. Well, you're going to worry about it then. So it, we have to be nimble enough to change when the circumstances really dictate it. But we want to be a little bit careful about not changing so often that people just give up on, you know, sort of stop paying attention. And there's a risk of that as well.
0: Yeah. Being a public health communicator. In these days must be a very challenging
1: job, yeah, in a way, although you know it's one thing for me to uh, to put out my take of what's going on on Twitter or do it in other conferences that I run. I have real sympathy for people doing it in the government, you know uh, you know uh, in some ways I'm being an armchair quarterback, and <laughs> them the stakes you know the stakes are higher. If I get yeah. it wrong, maybe a few people listen to me and they stop following me on Twitter. If they get it wrong, they've, you know, influenced the spending of billions of dollars and the behavior of millions and millions yeah. of people. <laughs> it's a really tough job. and you it know really I'm, I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for, for them and it feels different than it did two years ago. This is a, these are very good people. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's politics is there's politics, but it's not a terribly politicized environment. They're trying to get it right. And periodically, though, I think they do get it wrong.
0: Is there anything else you want our listeners to know before we wrap up?
1: Just take heart uh, you know and be kind to each other <laughs> you know we've all been through a really traumatic period and i I uh, you know it's it's been interesting, for example on Twitter where uh, the other day you know as i've I've been chronicling my son's illness and and I mainly did it not because it was unusual because it was so incredibly common and I just okay. thought it might be interesting for people to see how I as quote an expert was processing all of it. And I said, uh, uh, you know, he's still testing positive on day seven. And I said, I love him to pieces, but I wouldn't want him to breathe on me. And, and, you know, I got the I found this amusing, you know, fine. People said, oh, you are a terrible parent. I there would be no circumstance (laughs) under which I would not want my child to be able to hug me. Well, first of of all, he's 28. And second of all, I'd be happy to hug him if he was wearing an N95 and I was, too. (laughs) But I think there's everybody's gotten so edgy and a little nasty that I think we've got to really be a little bit more patient and kind Yeah. Yeah, If we can muster it.
0: Yeah. We all need to take a few breaths sometimes. Yeah. Well, Dr. Wachter, thank you so much for the work that you're continuing to do and for sharing your insights with us today.
1: It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: If you want to follow Dr. Wachter on Twitter, he's at Bob underscore Wachter. That's spelled W-A-C-H-T-E-R. If you want to follow me and provide ideas for future shows, I'm at Hallie H-A-L-L-E-T-E-C-C-O. This is the Heart of Healthcare podcast. Thank you for listening.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers, by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Brianna Seeley. Our intern is Antonella Sterniolo. Our host is Halle Tecco. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Brianna Seeley. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at script, no t, dot com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.